Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, December 1st through Tuesday, December 6th, feature guest conductor Thomas Sondergaard, pianist Francesco Piemontese, and the Chicago Symphony Chorus. The program includes Igor Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms, Piano Concerto No. 2 by Beethoven, and after intermission, Sibelius's Symphony No. 2. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms, a work lasting about 22 minutes. The trick, of course, Stravinsky once told Robert Kraft, is to compose what one wants to compose and to get it commissioned afterwards. In the case of the Symphony of Psalms, commissioned for the Boston Symphony Orchestra before Stravinsky had composed a note, he wrote what he wanted to anyway, calling it a symphony, partly to appease those who thought they had ordered an orchestral work. Stravinsky also refers back to the original meaning of the word as a simple and powerful gathering together of sounds, here a choral and instrumental ensemble in which the two elements should be on an equal footing, neither of them outweighing the other. Stravinsky's orchestra inhabits a unique sound world. There is an unusual concentration of flutes and trumpets, but no clarinets, violins, or violas. Stravinsky's own account of the composition of this great work follows and needs no addenda, but since composers don't always point out their greatest masterstrokes, here are a few additional comments. Listen closely to the first chord. It recurs several times during the opening minutes of the first movement, for although it is a simple E minor triad, in Stravinsky's hands, even a conventional chord becomes distinctive. In assigning the triad's notes to the instruments of that orchestra, Stravinsky hands out twice as many G's as E's or B's, contrary to what textbooks teach, and then concentrates these pitches either in the high reaches of the flutes, oboes, harp, and pianos, or in the low register in the bassoons, trombones, and basses, with nothing in between. Moreover, Stravinsky marks the chord not fortissimo, as one would expect, but plain mezzo forte, having learned long ago that he did not have to raise his voice to speak with force and power. The predominant G of Stravinsky's first chord, incidentally, prepares our ears for the end of the first movement when the music lifts upward to a brilliant G major triad. The conclusion of the Symphony of Psalms, with the pianos, harp, and timpani moving slowly back and forth through three notes, E-flat, B-flat, F, like a solemn tolling of church bells while the chorus intones its words of praise, is one of the most celebrated passages in Stravinsky's output. It is all the more impressive for being slow, quiet, austere, and repetitive. When E-flat finally rises to E-natural and the music sinks into C-major, Stravinsky achieves a simple power rare in music of any century. The Symphony of Psalms was commissioned by Serge Kusevitsky to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Kusevitsky fell ill the week of the premiere, which was then postponed until later in the month. In the meantime, Kusevitsky gave permission for the European premiere to go ahead according to schedule, thus making that the world premiere. And here is Igor Stravinsky himself on the Symphony of Psalms. The commissioning of the Symphony of Psalms began with the publisher's routine suggestion that I write something popular. 
I took the word not in the publisher's meaning of adapting to the understanding of the people, but in the sense of something universally admired. And I even chose Psalm 150 in part for its popularity, though another and equally compelling reason was my eagerness to counter the many composers who had abused these magisterial verses as pegs for their own lyrico-sentimental feelings. The Psalms are poems of exaltation, but also of anger and judgment and even curses. Although I regarded Psalm 150 as a song to be danced, as David danced before the ark, I knew that I would have to treat it in an imperative way. My publisher had requested an orchestral piece without chorus, but I had the psalm symphony idea in mind for some time, and that is what I insisted on composing. All of the music was written in Nice and in my summer home in Echavin. I began with Psalm 150, and my first notation was the figure that bears such a close family resemblance to Jocasta's Oracula Oracular from Oedipus Rex. After finishing the fast tempo sections of the psalm, I went back to compose the first and second movements. The Alleluia and the slow movement at the beginning of Psalm 150, which is an answer to the question in Psalm 40, were written last. I was much concerned in setting the psalm verses with problems of tempo. To me, the relation of tempo and meaning is a primary question of musical order, and until I am certain that I have found the right tempo, I cannot compose. Superficially, the text suggested a variety of speeds, but this variety was without shape. At first, and until I understood that God must not be praised in fast forte music, no matter how often the text specifies loud, I thought of the final hymn in a too rapid pulsation. This is the manner question again, of course. Can one say the same thing in several ways? I cannot in any case, and to me, the only possible way could not be more clearly indicated among all the choices if it were painted blue. I also cannot say whether a succession of choices results in a style, but my own description of style is tact in action, and I prefer to talk about the action of a musical sentence than to talk about its style. The first movement, Hear My Prayer, O Lord, was composed in a state of religious and musical ebullience. The sequences of two minor thirds joined by a major third, the root idea of the whole work, were derived from the trumpet-harp motif at the beginning of the Allegro in Psalm 150. I was not aware of Phrygian modes, Gregorian chants, Byzantinisms, or anything of that sort while composing this music, though, of course, influences said to be denoted by such scriptwriters' baggage stickers may very well have been operative. Byzantium was a source of Russian culture, after all, and according to current indexing, 1963, I am classifiable as a Russian. But the little I know about Byzantine music was learned from musicologist Egon Velesh long after I had composed the Symphony of Psalms. I did start to compose the Psalms in Slavonic, though, and only after coming a certain distance did I switch to Latin, just as I worked with English the same time as Hebrew in Abraham and Isaac. The Waiting for the Lord psalm makes the most overt use of musical symbolism in any of my music before the flood. An upside-down pyramid of fugues, it begins with a purely instrumental fugue of limited compass and employs only solo instruments. 
The restriction to treble range was the novelty of this initial fugue, but the limitation to flutes and oboes proved its most difficult compositional problem. The subject was developed from the sequence of thirds used as an ostinato in the first movement. The next and higher stage of the upside-down pyramid is the human fugue, which does not begin without instrumental help for the reason that I modified the structure as I composed and decided to overlap instruments and voices to give the material more development, but the human choir is heard a cappella after that. The human fugue also represents a higher level in the architectural symbolism by the fact that it expands into the bass register. The third stage, the upside-down foundation, unites the two fugues. Though I chose Psalm 150 first, and though my first musical idea was the already quoted rhythmic figure in that movement, I could not compose the beginning of it until I had written the second movement. Psalm 40 is a prayer that a new canticle may be put into our mouths. The Alleluia is that canticle. The word Alleluia still reminds me of the Hebrew galosh merchant Gurion, who lived in the apartment below ours in St. Petersburg, and who on high holy days would erect a prayer tent in his living room and dress himself in an ephod. The hammering sounds as he built his tent and the idea of a cosmopolitan merchant in a St. Petersburg apartment simulating the prayers of his forefathers in the desert impressed my imagination almost as profoundly as any direct religious experience of my own. The rest of the slow tempo introduction, the Laudate Dominum, was originally composed to the words of the Gospodi Pomilui. This section is a prayer to the Russian image of the infant Christ with orb and scepter. I decided to end the work with this music, too, as an apotheosis of the sort that had become a pattern in my music since the epithalamium at the end of Lenos. The Allegro in Psalm 150 was inspired by a vision of Elijah's chariot climbing the heavens. Never before had I written anything quite so literal as the triplets for horns and piano to suggest the horses and chariot. The final hymn of praise must be thought of as issuing from the skies, and agitation is followed by the calm of praise. But such statements embarrass me. What I can say is that in setting the words of this final hymn, I cared above all for the sounds of the syllables, and I have indulged my besetting pleasure of regulating prosody in my own way. I really do tire of people pointing out that dominum is one word and that its meaning is obscured the way I respirate it, like the Alleluia in the sermon, a sermon, a narrative, and a prayer which has reminded everybody of the Psalms. Do such people know nothing about word splitting in polyphonic music? One hopes to worship God with a little art, if one has any. And if one hasn't and cannot recognize it in others, then one can at least burn a little incense. An excerpt from Dialogues and a Diary by Igor Stravinsky and Robert Kraft. And program notes by Philip Husher on Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms. And now on to Sibelius's Symphony Number no. 2, a work lasting about 44 minutes. The spell of Italy often has a salutary effect on artists from the north. Goethe regularly recommended making a trip to Italy. Mendelssohn took his advice and returned with his Italian symphony. Berlioz toured Italy against his better judgment 
and ended up staying 15 months addicted to the countryside. Harold in Italy is the souvenir he brought us. Wagner claimed he got the idea for the opening of Das Rheingold in La Spezia on the western seacoast. Tchaikovsky later nursed a broken spirit in Italy and took home his Capriccio Italien, as untroubled as any music he ever wrote. Jan Sibelius went to Italy in 1901. Even then, his name meant fjords and bitter cold to people who had not yet heard his music. To those who had, in particular, the overly popular Finlandia, first performed at a nationalistic pageant in 1899, Sibelius was the voice of Finland. But in Italy, Sibelius's thought turned away from his homeland, and he contemplated a work based on Dante's Divine Comedy. While staying in the sun-drenched seaside town of Rapallo, he toyed with a four-movement tone poem, Festival, based on the same stone guest theme that Mozart had treated in Don Giovanni. Nothing ever came of these ideas, but he did begin his second symphony, which he finished once back in Finland. We should not credit Italy alone with the warmth and ease of Sibelius's second symphony, for years later he would return there only to write Tapiola, the bleakest of all his works. But Sibelius did love Italy. He later admitted it was second only to his native Finland, and his extended stay there in 1901 certainly had a profound effect on Finland's first great composer. His sketchbooks confirm that ideas conceived in Rapolo turned up throughout the Second Symphony, and even Sibelius himself admitted that Don Juan stalks the second movement. Sibelius is more interesting as a composer than as a nationalist. Ultimately, the qualities that give his music its own quite singular cast, the bracing sonorities, the craggy textures, and the quirky but compelling way his music moves forward are the product of musical genius, not Finnish heritage. It is true that he developed an abiding interest in the Kalevala, the Finnish national epic, as a schoolboy, and that he knew, loved, sometimes remembered his native folk song when writing music, but he did not even learn Finnish until he was a young man, having grown up in a Swedish-speaking household, and his patriotism was fueled not so much by landscape and congenital pride, but by marriage into a powerful and politically active family. It is precisely because Sibelius's music is not outwardly nationalistic of the picture-postcard variety that it is so profound, specific and evocative, yet also timeless and universal. The symphony was the most important genre for Sibelius's musical thoughts at a time when the form didn't seem to suit most composers. Strauss, Schoenberg, Stravinsky, and Bartok, for example, all wrote symphonies of various kinds, but their pioneering work was done elsewhere. The one contemporary of Sibelius, whose symphonies are played today, Gustav Mahler, took the symphony to mean something quite different. Sibelius and Mahler met in Helsinki in 1907, and their words on the subject, often quoted, suggest that this was the only time their paths would ever cross, literally or figuratively. Sibelius always remembered their encounter. When our conversation touched on the essence of the symphony, I said that I admired its severity and style, and the profound logic that created an inner connection between all the motifs. This was the experience I had come to in composing. 
Mahler's opinion was just the reverse. Nein, die Symphonie muss sein wie die Welt. Sie muss alles umfassen. No, the symphony must be like the world. It must embrace everything. Those lines have often been repeated to explain why Mahler's symphonies sprawl and sing, resembling no others ever written, but they are just as useful in seeing Sibelius's point of view. By 1907, Sibelius had fixed his vision on symphonic music of increasing austerity. His third symphony, completed that summer, marks the turning point. That same summer, Mahler put the final touches on his Eighth Symphony, scored for eight vocal soloists, chorus, boys, choir, and huge orchestra, taking as its text a medieval hymn and the closing scene from Goethe's Faust, and lasting nearly two hours, the work we now know as the Symphony of a Thousand. Five years earlier, in 1902, the year Sibelius's second symphony was first performed, Mahler had unveiled his third, which lasts longer than Sibelius's first two symphonies combined. Sibelius's Second Symphony is a bold, unconventional work. We know too many of his later works and too much later music in general, perhaps, to see it that way. But at the time, the time of Schoenberg's luscious transfigured night, not Piero Nonner, of Stravinsky's academic E-flat symphony, not the Rite of Spring, it staked out new territory to which Sibelius alone would return. The first movement, like much of his most characteristic music, makes something whole and compelling out of bits and pieces. As Sibelius would later write, it is as if the Almighty had thrown down the pieces of a mosaic for heaven's floor and asked me to put them together. Heaven's floor turns out to be designed in a familiar sonata form, but this isn't readily apparent. Commentators seldom agree on the beginning of the second theme, for example. Certainly any symphony that begins in pieces can't afford to dissect things further in a traditional development section. In fact, for Sibelius, development often implies the first step in putting the music back together. Once, when he was asked about these technical matters, Sibelius cunningly chose to speak about a spiritual development instead. There is true sustained lyricism in the slow second movement, but that is not how it opens. Sibelius begins with a timpani roll and restless pizzicato strings from which a bassoon tune struggles to emerge. Melody eventually does take wing, but what we remember most is the wonderful series of adventures encountered in the process. The scherzo is brief, hurried, except for a sorrowful woodwind theme inspired not by Finland's fate, as commentators used to insist, but by the suicide of Sibelius's sister-in-law, and it is also expectant. When, after about five minutes, it leads straight into the broad first chords of the finale, we realize that this is what we were waiting for all along. From there, the fourth movement unfolds slowly, continuously, and with increasing power and majesty. It rises and soars in ways denied the earlier movements, and that, of course, is Sibelius's way, heaven's floor visible at last. Philip Husher's program notes on the Symphony No. 2 by Sibelius. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.